Dear Lord, I thank you for this opportunity to open your word. And I ask you to open up our hearts, open up our minds. Lord, you have a word for each of us individually. And Lord, I just ask us to receive your word and help me that the words that I speak are your words. And we just thank you in the name of Jesus. So this was an interesting lesson to prepare because Carol assigned it to me. And she said, I want you to teach on the history of Israel. I went, how much of the history of Israel? <laughs> All the way? She said, no, the birth of a nation. Just And I said, well, okay, what are your parameters? And she said, I don't have any. Just, you know, you, you go ahead and do what you feel. So I thought, oh, my word. I sat around for at least a couple of weeks going, where do you start? What do you do? I mean, I read. I, And finally I thought, you know, we have to talk about a people becoming a nation. When does a group of people become a nation? If you take our own country... We had land. I think the definition, oh, it's not up there. We had land um, that we were living in, and what we wanted was to be free. And so when, does, um, when did the United States become a nation? Was it at the signing of the Declaration of Independence? Was it at the Revolutionary War when we freed ourselves from the tyranny of someone else? Was it con- the Constitution? And you can find historians that kind of can argue almost every point. I um, have a history teacher in my family, so I called her, and she said you could make a case for any one of those. But, you know, really, it was when they started governing themselves and when they fought together and they had a cohesive mind. But we're not talking about our country. We're talking about Israel, and they didn't have a land. They, They didn't. They were somewhere else as slaves. When did they become a nation? And I thought, where am I going to start this? And I really decided after uh, reading and prayer about it, we have to start at the beginning. The beginning of history starts in Genesis 1.1. And it says, in the beginning, God created. And that's where you have to start it all. It all starts with God. Everything starts with God. You go outside and you look at the clouds, you look at the, the hills, you look at wherever you want to look at. God created it. If he didn't create it directly, he created the chemicals, the elements, the modules, whatever it takes for man and all of our cleverness to put it together. God created it. That's where God started his plan in the beginning. God had a plan from the very beginning to create for himself a people, a people that he could love. He already loved, but a people that would love him, a people that he could govern, that he could reign, his people. That's what he wanted, a people that would worship him. And we're going to do some of this in a really short flyover of history. So we're going to start, like I said, in Genesis. And we can see where sin entered the world through Adam and Eve. And after the Garden of Gethsemane, the next significant character is Noah. Now, the world had gotten really bad. Sin was everywhere. God looked down and he was really disappointed. It said that he even created it. That's got to be a pretty sorry state. But there was one man that was righteous. So God took him, and he saved him and his whole family. After Noah, we have the Tower of Babel, another fine example of of humans running their own lives. Humans had become so arrogant. See if you can relate to this today. We had become so arrogant that we thought we didn't need God. We thought that we could build a tower and reach God that we were as important, as intelligent as God. Well, it didn't work out really well. That's how we have all of our different languages. And uh, 
So man on his own doesn't do very well. You know, God's rules were very simple. He said, I want you to obey me. And in 1 Samuel 15, 22, it says, What is more pleasing to the Lord? Your burnt offerings and sacrifices or your obedience to his voice? Listen, obedience is better than sacrifice and submission is better than offering of fat rams. He wants us to obey him. What else does he want? He wants us to love him. He says, love me. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Jesus said that in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, And that's a passionate love. That's not a casual love. Like we tell each other, I love you. And we do to some extent. But that's not the kind of love that God's looking for. He's looking for a love that's all-consuming. Your heart, your mind, your soul. That's all of you. That's it. He wants you to love him with that much love. And he said in his part, he says, I will prosper you. Deuteronomy 29.9 says, Therefore, obey the terms of this covenant so that you will prosper in everything you do. So you obey and you prosper. Most of God's promises are twofold. They're our part, they're his part. So he's saying, I'm going to prosper you. All you have to do is obey me and love me. The other thing he says is, I will take care of you. And in Deuteronomy 131, it says, And you saw how the Lord your God cared for you all along the way as you traveled through the wilderness, just as a father cares for his child. God says, I'm going to take care of you like a loving daddy. And the reason he's going to do this is because he says, I already love you. God loved us before we were born, before we were conceived. God knew we were going to be here at this part in time. He already loved us. With a God like that, it's, it doesn't seem like he's asking for very much. In 1 John 3, 1, it says, See how much the Father loves us, for he calls us his children, and that's what we are. We're God's children. That's pretty awesome. But people disobeyed and tried unsuccessfully to run their own lives. Have you ever done that? Have you ever tried to run your own life? (laughs) Doesn't work. It was total failure. (laughs) Through it all, God redeemed a remnant of people that did follow him. From Noah, and then we come to Abraham. Actually, Noah's son Shem was the the bloodline that, that actually the children of Israel came through. So God had this plan, and he had it carried down from generation to generation to generation. This brings us to Abraham, who was then called Abram. And, but before Abraham, God dealt generally with humankind, with all of the people. After Abraham, he actually only dealt with one family because that was going to be his nation. Terah, Abram's father, um, left Ur of the, to go to Canaan with Abram, Sari, Abram's wife, and Lot, his nephew. But they stopped in Haran, and they dwelt there. So now we have Abraham's in, in Haran. And God goes to him. And in Genesis 12, 1 to 3, it says, Now God said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. 
I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you or treat you with contempt. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. God said, I need you to leave where you are. God, God must change our present to give us our future. And we're people who hate change. And so God needed to separate Abraham from his idolatrous family in order to make him and his descendants the messianic nation in which salvation to all the earth would come. God needed Abraham to obey him and leave. And the Bible just tells us he did it. And I thought about that because as, as after you write it and you read it several times and, and modify your lesson several times, you get to thinking about it. And I thought, you know, if God came to me and said, okay, now I want you to just move away from your house and your stuff and your family. Just, I've got a place for you. Just go. And what would your response be? I'd be like, well, where are we going? Um, how are we going to get there? How long do I have to stay? Um, am I going to, you know, there'd be all these questions. But the Bible said that Abraham did it. He just did it. Because God needed him to just obey. He left everything and he obeyed God. God is setting up the beginning. He's setting up the beginning of the nation of Israel. It's the first time he referenced, I'm going to make you a nation. You know, as a side note in my um, spirit-filled Bible, in Truth and Action, it says, do not fear when God's direction takes a turn you do not understand. He is completely trustworthy. And he is. God has never failed. He never lets us down. And yet when, when we get pushed in a different direction, my first thing is, why is this happening? What are you doing? But, you know, God is saying, just trust me. I got it covered. I got a plan. <laughs> I've got it covered. So this is the basis of Abraham's story. He trusted God, and God led him. In chapter 15, we see God's covenant with Abraham. God went to Abraham and he gave him several promises. In 15.1, it says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. And in 5 to 8, it goes on to say, Look now toward the heavens. Count the stars, if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed in God, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. And Abraham basically said back, Lord God, how shall I know I'm going to inherit it? Abraham had obeyed all along the way, but he finally came to a part where he's looking up at the stars and he goes, how do I know this is going to happen? How do I know you're going to do this? And so God did something really, really special. He made a really unbreakable promise. God made a covenant with Abraham. He took a heifer, a female goat, a ram, a turtle dove, and a pigeon, and he cut them in half except for the birds, right down the middle, and he put them opposite each other, and God walked between them. God made a covenant with Abraham, a one-sided covenant. Abraham didn't promise anything. God promised. God did more than promise. A covenant is a stronger is stronger than a promise. God made a promise that could never be broken. He bound himself to his promise. And we know that God cannot lie. 
In Titus 1-2, it says, In hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. Numbers 23-19 says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? If God gives you a promise, he's going to do it. You don't have to wonder about it. He's going to do it. God can't lie to you. He isn't tricking you. God keeps his promises. He can't lie. So next we have Isaac, and then we move to Jacob, who was the father of 12 sons. The fourth son of Jacob was Judah. Judah was the one whose bloodline would bring the Messiah. One of Jacob's sons was Joseph. And I'm sure you all know the story of Joseph, how his father favored him, gave him a special coat of many colors. His brothers hated him. And when they had a chance, they sold him into slavery in Egypt and lied to their father that he had been killed. And so Joseph goes to Egypt all alone and through a series of events that had him both in charge of things and in prison, Joseph rose to a position in Egypt where he was a ruler. And during a time of famine, he had a chance to bring his whole family to Egypt and save them because God needed these people saved. But eventually, Joseph died, and Pharaoh, a Pharaoh came on the scene who um, didn't know Joseph. He didn't know what great things he'd done for Egypt. And he looked around, and in the land of Goshen, there were all these people. And they were numbering lots of people, and they were successful. And he got scared. And he decided in case that they rebelled or that, that they needed to take charge. So Egypt made them slaves. And so there they were, the family of Abraham, the promised people, slavery in Egypt. But during their time in Egypt, they grew from 70 people to somewhere between 2 and 3 million. God needed these people to be in a place. This, this is totally my opinion, so... God needed these people to quit being nomads roaming the desert if they were going to grow in numbers and be a distinct people. He put them in Egypt, and he already knew. God knows our future. He already knew what was going to happen because in Genesis 15, 13, God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. I'll bet Joseph didn't know that when he brought them all over. He probably wouldn't have brought them then or he would have made them leave before he died. But God wanted them there. They had to grow. They had to be isolated. They were slaves. They weren't going to intermarry. They weren't going to rise in government. They weren't going to get so comfortable in Egypt that they would never leave. He wanted them to themselves somewhere where he could keep track of them and help them. So now it's time to leave Egypt, and God recruited Moses. And he sent Moses to the ruler Pharaoh to ask that he let the Israelites leave Egypt. Pharaoh, of course, said no, because that was all of his manual labor. You know, they didn't pay to have a maid come in once a week and clean their house. They had the Israelites. (laughs) So Pharaoh says, no, you know, there's no way I'm doing that. So then we have a whole series of events or plagues on Egypt each to bring Pharaoh to the point of saying yes. First you had blood. The water turned to blood. And if you think about that, that's really gross. (laughs) 
And then after that, we had frogs. I'm not a fan of frogs. Not just frogs kind of out by the pond or something, but frogs. Frogs in your kitchen, frogs in your bedroom, frogs. Then we had lice. Think of all those lice. Oh. And then we had deceased livestock lying around, stinking. Then we had boils. And then we had hail. Not the kind of hail you take a picture on your iPhone and send off to somebody saying, look, it's hailing in my backyard. We had hail that would break through roofs and kill people and kill cattle. And I mean, we're talking hail, big-time hail on steroids. We had locusts. I don't know about anybody else, but I hate grasshoppers because you never know where they're going to land when they take off. They have an extremely poor sense of direction, I think. And they always somehow land on me or something, and I just am not into that. And darkness, so dark you couldn't see. You, couldn't, you could almost feel it. It was so dark. Have any of you ever been to a cave and, and they turn off all the lights and you stand there? I went to um, Carlsbad Caverns one time, and uh, the ranger said, okay, now I'm going to show you how dark dark really is. Don't move. He told everyone that, so... <laughs> So he turned off the lights, and you, couldn't, you could go like this, and you couldn't see your hand. That's how dark it was. Not just for a little while, but it was dark. And then, finally, they had the death of the firstborn. Now, at each of these plagues, Pharaoh had the opportunity to let him go. And each time he would say, okay, fine, you can go. And then as soon as the plague was over, then he'd say, no, I changed my mind. And pretty soon through the story, it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Have you ever wondered why he did that? I kind of, I was thinking about that. And I honestly think it was because God needed to show the children of Israel and Pharaoh who was in charge. The Egyptians thought Pharaoh was a god. They treated him like a god. But he wasn't god. The Lord God Almighty was god. And the children of Israel needed to see that he could control everything in this earth. Most of these plagues never happened to them. They were over in the land of Goshen. But Egypt just got hit one right after another. And I think God was just saying, look, Pharaoh, you might think you're really important, but I'm God, and you can't control this stuff. So then we had, like I said, the death of the firstborn. And what happened was that that God had the children of Israel each pick a lamb, a spotless, perfect lamb out of their flock, the best one they had. And he brought it in and they butchered it. They ate it, but they took the blood of the lamb and they put it on the doorposts of their house. And when the angel of death came, he passed over all the houses with the blood of the lamb on it. God prepared Israel for a future by having them place blood on their doorposts. So the angel bringing death wouldn't, wouldn't stop there. God was establishing his promise of a lamb which would die and allow God's wrath to pass over believers in the future. He was setting the stage for the Messiah. This is where God started his plan on earth to bring Jesus, to show everyone that it's the blood of the perfect lamb of God that allows us to not pay for our sin. So by this time, after the firstborn of all the Egyptians died, 
Pharaoh and all of Egypt were really anxious to have them leave. <laughs> they not only said, oh, please go. They said, here, take our jewelry. <laughs> you know, here, take the cattle. Take the jewels. I'll give you anything. Just leave. So they did. They left. And next we came to the Red Sea. They left and they got as far as the Red Sea. And Pharaoh changed his mind. <laughs> and he thought, I don't know what he was thinking. He thought, I'm going to go get them. I don't want them to go. So picture this. Pretend you're them. You're at the Red Sea. It's a big body of water. It's really very deep. And it's in front of you. And there's no bridge. And there's no boats. And there's three million of you with cows and sheep and goats. And, and there you are. And you turn around. And behind you is this big cloud of dust getting bigger. And that's Pharaoh's army. They're coming to get you. And you're standing there going, uh-oh, I think I have a problem. What do you do? I could ask you a question closer to home. What do you do when you're caught in a challenging situation? What do you do when you're faced with something where you look and you say, I don't like the future. I don't see where this is going to be good. I don't want to walk through this. But you look behind you and you think, I can't go back. I can't go back. How am I going to go forward? So they did what most of us do. They complained. (laughs) They complained. They had just seen God rescue them from Egypt, and now they were complaining. They said to Moses, but there were no graves in Egypt. Have you taken us out here to die in the wilderness? In 1411. They said it wasn't good enough to just leave us in Egypt. You brought us out here to die. They never once said to Moses, could you ask God what he's going to do? Or could you ask God to rescue us? The first thing they went to is, I can't handle this situation. What did you do to us? But God does what he always does. He says, don't be afraid. (laughs) He just says, don't be afraid. In verse 14, Moses tells them, the Lord will fight for you and you shall hold your peace. Basically, what Moses told them is God's going to take care of this. Be quiet. There's this verse in Psalms that says, be still and know that I am God. Because, you know, the longer we talk, the longer we complain, the longer we question, the more we, we change our spirit from a spirit of trust to a spirit of not trusting. The more we grumble, the more we go, God, I don't. I don't get it. God, why are you doing this? God says, be quiet. Just be quiet and trust me. Don't be afraid. I'm here. I already took took you this far. Be quiet. I think that's an important lesson for us because negativity is a terrible thing. It is much more contagious than being positive. When you call your friends and you start griping about the situation you're in, when you complain about a person that's bothering you, it, it just really drives that into your heart. It makes it more real when most of it is really imagined maybe. But, you know, God says, I've got you. I've got you covered. Just be still. Calm down. Don't tell everybody all your issues. You know, just, I got it. Go for prayer, but quit griping. I've got it. And so, and God did. So Moses told him, he says, God's going to fight for you. Just take it easy. And God did the most amazing thing. He parted the Red Sea. He just, it says in the Bible, he stood the water up on both sides. It had to be a big opening because there were three million people, plus the cows and the sheep and the goats. And he stood the water up, and it says they walked through on dry land. 
And we read that story and we get in awe about the wall of water. But I got to thinking about this because I went camping this summer. I let myself get tucked into going tent camping with my family. You know, they started this early on. Please go with us. And I said, oh, my camping days are over. It's been decades since I've camped. No, no, no. And then they sucked the four-year-old on me. It was like, Auntie, I want you to go. I love you. We're going to have so much fun. Please go. So I went. So we, we, you know, and we were up in the Sierras, and we went up to this a couple lakes, and each of them were way down from their normal levels. And we were sitting at this one, and, and all of the younger guys in their 20s had brought... Um, play toys. So we had blow up boat rafts and we had a kayak and we had all this stuff. So we were all going to do water things. And the little four-year-old started walking down from where the the water used to be out to where the water was now. And partway down, he started yelling, I'm stuck. And he was. He had sunk this far in the mud, gooey mud. The water hadn't receded just that day. It had been receded for a while and he couldn't get his feet up. He's just a little skinny guy. So so my sister and I carefully walked out, and we grabbed him, and we pulled him up. And we also sunk up to our ankles, but we were a little stronger. And uh, his mother the whole time is yelling, don't leave his shoes in the mud. <laughs> <You know? laughs> he has water shoes on because he came out of those. So give his shoes. And you're like, okay. So I got to thinking about that when I was writing this, and I thought, you know, it's a big rip. It's a big sea. It had been totally covered. They not only stopped the water, God not only stood the water up, he dried the ground out. You imagine walking out there with three million people and half of them stuck in the mud with the cows? They would have been fair game for Pharaoh. God dried the land up. They walked through. So I thought that was pretty amazing. So are they a nation now? They're out of Egypt. They're on the other side of the Red Sea. But I don't think so. Because at every junction, they didn't act together with any kind of pride or identity. They wanted to return to Egypt every time there was a problem, every time things got tough. They were still slaves mentally. They just didn't have a master. What they didn't see is that God had patiently been preparing for them to be a nation, a people that would be his. They were in the middle of the journey, and it's really murky in the middle. You know, I heard a a sermon one time that I really took to heart, and it, it said that when you get the promise... It's really great. You're excited. God gave me a promise. And when you see that promise fulfilled, it's really wonderful. You can rejoice. But it's that little middle area that really gets to you because you don't know. And that's where they were. They were at the start of the middle area. So we're only going to go a little further in this because I don't want to step on everybody's toes who's going to teach the rest of the way. We're just going to brush over some of this. But the Israelites are on the other side of the Red Sea, and Pharaoh's army is at the bottom of the Red Sea. The people who wanted them back were gone. They didn't have to worry about the Egyptians anymore. They weren't going to come after them again. And this is a good thing, and you would think that the people would be amazed and convinced that God was with them and would take care of them. But what we see in the coming weeks is a series of events and a series of complaints. It wasn't good enough to just look at what God had done. Do we do that? Do you do that? Do you forget that yesterday God rescued you when tomorrow you get another problem? I think we do. What follows is very significant, though, in their history of the making of a nation. God took them to Mount Sinai. The book of Exodus is easily split into two halves. 
And if you have not read the entire book of Exodus altogether, you don't have to sit down and do it in one day, but two or three days, read the book of Exodus before we go on anymore because the book of Exodus is an amazing book. The first part of it from 1 to 18 is the revelation from God. I'm sorry, is a redemption from slavery. The first half of the book is all about their redemption from slavery. The next part, 19 to 40, is all about the revelation from God at Mount Sinai. It's all about God getting them formed. The concept of redemption is central to the book of Exodus. God, because of his faithfulness to the covenant promise to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, redeemed his people from Egypt at just the right time. He delivered them from slavery and preserved them while walking through the wilderness, and he was preparing them to enter the promised land because God already had it all figured out. Israel was redeemed from bondage into a covenant relationship with God, which is also passed down to us because we've accepted his son. Now that the people had experienced God's deliverance, guidance, and protection, they were ready to be taught what God expected of them. And on Mount Sinai, Moses received from God a moral code, the Ten Commandments. They won't mention it nowadays in schools very much, but you know that the law of all Western civilization, anybody with freedom, is based on the Ten Commandments. All the rules started with that. He, he presented them as civil and ceremonial laws. He told them how to behave with each other. He told them how to settle differences, as well as giving them a pattern for the tabernacle to be built in the wilderness. A tabernacle is a dwelling place. It was going to be God's dwelling place. God was going to dwell with them in the wilderness, and he told them exactly how to make his house. He told them exactly how to set up camp, so that wherever you stop, three million people would be hard to find. Can you imagine helter-skelter tents all over going, where's Jeremiah? You know, it would be terrible. So God told him, he says, you're going to split it up in quarters. Tabernacle's going to be here, and the tribes are going to be in the same place each time. That was order. God knew exactly how to plan it out. In chapter 24, 1 to 18, Moses records the words of the Lord and he reads them to the children of Israel. And Israel promises to do all that the Lord had said. So if we look at them now, we see that they're free. They were delivered from slavery. They have a leader, God, through his servant Moses. And they now have laws and directions on how to conduct their lives. They have an organization of leaders and sub-leaders. I think this is when they start becoming a nation. God told them how to organize their rules. He said, okay, you have the leader, Moses. Now you have sub-leaders, and after that you have other sub-leaders. And then you... He broke them down so they were manageable numbers of people. Every military organization going is built exactly the same way. Most major corporations are built exactly the same way because God had a good plan, and it works. As they travel through the wilderness... Other nations engage them as a group in battles. They make treaties with them as a people. The nation of Israel is on their way to the land that God promised, Abram, way back when he told him to leave his family. And there's a parallel here that we can see in our lives because we've been set free. We were slaves. We were slaves to sin. We were slaves to our heritage. We were slaves to our past, to our habits, 
But God said, you're not slaves anymore. I set you free. I'm going to take care of you. I can help you organize. You don't have to live in chaos. I have rules for you. I have things you need to do. They're all here. I have it all figured out. And if you look closely at a chain of events, only God knew exactly what was going to happen. Out of a straggly bunch of brothers who didn't even like each other, God directed events. During the 400 years in Egypt, they grew into a large group ready to follow God. He delivered them at the right time with the right leader. Because God started this plan way before they needed deliverance. In Genesis, he told them they were going to be slaves. He had already started figuring out when they needed to be rescued and how they were going to be rescued. Because the one thing I realized when I was studying this is God always starts planning for our deliverance way before we know we need deliverance. So when he delivers us, it's at exactly the right time because he didn't wake up today and say, oh, my word, what happened? I didn't know you were going to be over there. He, he said, you're going to need my help over here. I'm going to start now. I'm going to move people into place. I'm going to move situations into place. I'm going to make a path that you're going to get out of because that's the God we serve. If we stand back and be, we can be in awe of the work that God did to get his people to the point of an organization, of an organized nation, perhaps if we do that, we could trust him with our day-to-day life, that we could trust him to our situations when we don't see where on earth our life is going or how we're ever going to get it to turn around because God already knows. I'm going to leave you with Jeremiah 29, 11, and 12, and you've heard this verse so much, some of you are already starting to say it in your mind, and you'll probably hear it again because it fits great with these lessons, but I'm going to read it out of the message. It says, I know what I'm doing. I have it all planned out. Plans to take care of you, not to abandon you. Plans to give you the future you hope for. When you call on me, when you come and pray to me, I'll listen. And I thought, what a wonderful ending to a promise. God of the universe, who created everything, says, if you come to me, if you just pray to me, I'll listen. He'll listen to us. He's not talking to, he's talking to us individually. Just pray. He's there. So, thank you.